Hi everyone. Welcome to Real World Parenting, tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, a child and family psychologist, and I'm glad you're here. As you settle in to listen, let me reassure you that you are in the right place. If you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement, and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things. If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child, and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it Lessons from Our Living Rooms or Couch Conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community, to provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions including, well, what do I say when and what do I do when, so that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad. All right, welcome everyone. I am thrilled you're here. I'm excited for this week's uh, conversation with Erica Orozco Cruz. Welcome, Erica. We're gonna we're we're Erica and I were chatting just before we came on today. Erica has decades, years, I don't want to, decades makes you sound <laughs> extra wise, but not, not old, not like me by any stretch of the imagination. So, so you have lots of experience with parenting and with littles and, and tell us a little bit, I always like to let guests help my listeners understand what, what brings you to the room today? What experience do you have in this realm? Oh, for sure. Um, well, I started working with families and children when I was still a kid, uh, 15 years old, you know, volunteering my summers at daycare centers, and I just loved it, and I haven't stopped. Here I am 30-some years later. Uh, we have our own nursery school here in Los Angeles, um, and I have children of my own that are 25, 22, 14, and two years and it's uh, quite the stretch. And uh, and I, you know, I've been working with families for over 30 years, and it's just not an easy job. I mean, you know, we know that. And yeah. um, 
And so I'm here as a support for parents. I'm here to, you know, be a witness, you know, for, for families and to just, you know, encourage them to always strive. Yeah. And so you do some, you have the, the early learning center, right? How, what do you, is it yes. preschool? I don't know how, what, what language you, you use to describe it, but, and then you also do some parenting coaching. Yes. Yes. Um, I do online and in person, um, parent coaching, um, the school serves six months to six years and our philosophy is, you know, based on the Waldorf and the Rye philosophy resources for infant educators. And nice. that's been my foundation uh, for parenting. I was so lucky to learn about it, you know, as I was going through school and, you know, early childhood development and college courses. And and I look back and just feel like I was blessed. Yeah. <laughs> I, was blessed I was blessed that I had that as a foundation, but it, that I, I also enjoy it. You know, um, everybody finds what they enjoy in life and hopefully that becomes your work. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely been my passion through through the years. Tell, tell a little bit for our listeners, how do you describe in sort of parent-friendly language, what's what's the Waldorf theory? I know there's a lot of parents looking for different schooling styles that work for their kids. How would you describe the Waldorf theory in a nutshell? I know that's tricky. I know nothing can be boiled down to a sentence, but what do you, how would you describe the Waldorf approach to learning? Um, for me, it's really about that the arts are as important as the reading, writing, and rhythm. Um, they really have the experience of movement, um, artistic painting, um, clay. There's all kinds of um, artistic opportunities, wood carving, you know, at you know, a variety of different ages, of course, that it's appropriate. Um, but they also really delay the learning for the very young child. And so it's play-based learning all the way up until six years. And when they're, you know, on their way to turning seven and entering first grade, which is a little bit later than usual mainstream, um, is when they start to introduce letters. And uh, my children have all been through that, except my youngest so far. And it, for me, it's they, they've developed a love of learning. They, they're mm. curious. They're, you know, really leaning into the learning. They love the dialogue uh, instead of everything learning from a book. Um, Waldorf students through eighth grade make their own textbooks, actually. And so it's it's a different way of learning, yeah. you know, if you can imagine that. Um, and their their skills for conversation as they enter college, you know, they would be the students, you know, after their college courses, hanging out with the teachers and having conversations with them. Oh, wow. And yeah, I... Yes, hear lots of wonderful things over the years about about Waldorf education and exactly I love that the love of learning and being finding their own way to learn what what's what they're motivated to learn and and um, integrating lots of different layers of that. Um, give us a little synopsis of the Rye method as well. How does that add to Waldorf? Or how does that interface? Yes. Um, so the Rye work um, was focused on the zero to two years uh, children. Um, Magda Gerber was the co-founder, and she really um, brought uh, the idea of respect uh, to a young infant and respect in the way of, you know, I wouldn't grab a tissue and go and wipe your no nose, but we do that to children. 
you know, without any respect to their body and letting them know what's going to happen. Um, we often think, especially before pre-verbal of like, oh, I need to do everything and not explain what's happening because yep. they won't understand me. But in actuality, they do understand. Um, and so even right from the beginning, a young infant, you know, days old, you can start letting them know about, I'm going to lay you down. I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to change your diaper. And at first, we might sound like Charlie Brown's teacher. (laughs) (laughs) But when they hear, and if you can think how many times you say diaper, you know, they're like, oh, that's what she means. And so when we continue that, there's that foundation of mutual respect of like, oh, she's letting me know, you know, before she touches my body, that Mm -hmm. I'm going to, you know, be touched. And, um, and what I saw from the rye work as the, as my boys were getting older, that it just, you know, um, the exchange and transition into older of play, you know, play-based learning. There's not any early learning of like A's, B's and C's um, for the zero to two in the rye work, um, but just really focused on play and social and interactional skills um, that I saw cross over so easily. Yeah, that sounds like a really beautiful pairing. So I'm hearing that there's the combination of the Waldorf and the Rye methods in your learning center. So I'm, I'm assuming those are the, the principles that you also um, live by in your parenting. Yeah, uh, those two go hand in hand for the work that I do, even the work that I do with parents. But it was such a foundation for my children and a support for me, you know, to, to be a guide and to lean on. Um, and so, yes, uh, to give you an example, he, my son climbed into the car with my dad. Um, he was picking him up to go somewhere and he jumped in the car and he said, you know, grandpa, you know, how's your, how's your friend John? And I want to say he like met John once, <laughs> but he knows that John is my dad's best friend and, um, and that he was not feeling well. He had, must have heard a conversation between my dad and me. And it was just so thoughtful and, you know, and curious. And again, just the iteration, you know, relations of connecting with others. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I'm curious. Was that, we, we talked a bit before we started recording. So was this, was this how you were parented, right? Is this different from the way that you were parented? Is it the same? What was that? What was that experience like in terms of choosing the path you were going to chart for parenting? I would say it was very, very, very different (laughs) than how I was parented. Um, I grew up here in Los Angeles. Um, My parents both worked full time. I really had, um, my first couple years were actually my first three years were with my grandmother and uh, my paternal grandmother. And she was all heart, you know, really patient, watched, you know, all the grandkids, you know, going through the house at all different ages. And I was the youngest at the time, really just grateful in her way of being. Mm-hmm. By the time I was three, she was diagnosed with blood cancer. Um, by the time I was four, I lost her. Oh. Um, and so when people say, you know, the first five years are the most important years, she was, she was my foundation. And so the person that I become, I can tell you, goes right back to who she was. And so that presence of being um, was 
was such a lighthouse for me that even after she was gone, my parents were having their difficulties in their marriage and we were moving quite often with a lot of conditions and um, a lot of stress and a lot of parents checking out, not really being available. Um, so really, it was, it was at that point, I want to say at a young age of like, in my head, and that seven, eight years old of like, I do not want to parent like this. Mm. And it was, it wasn't until, of course, you know, where I'm now expecting a child and going, what am I going to do? <laughs> How, uh, what does it mean to not do that? Yeah. <laughs> and so, again, you know, I felt like I was really just blessed that I had, you know, the education that I did. Again, not ever knowing that I was going to be, you know, you know, working with kids. I was, you know, in college. This was something that I was interested in. Um, I didn't know what that would pan out to look like as a parent. But it, it was really just, we learned what we need to learn and so, so for, for me, that became the curiosity of, okay, what is out there? And so I learned about the Rye work when I was in school and, and quite young, you know, 18. And it was like, oh, this is really great. You talk to kids, you let them know what's going to happen. This is really great, but you can't really do it and set it aside. Um, because I had been in the field already, you know, since I was 15. And I had never seen any interactions like that. And so it wasn't until I actually was out on an interview at a center that was using Martha's work and had, had her come and consult so that they could actually build the layout of a new school that they were building and um, saw it in action. And I was like, what is that? Like, what is that? That is so different, so new. And, um, and then found out and started learning about that as I became pregnant um, with my first child with you know, involved in those, that coursework. And then I had the same aha moment, moment when I was volunteering um, and was asked to go drop off some flyers um, for a children's health organization over at one of the local Waldorf schools. And again, this was already, I had been in the field probably like eight years by that time. And I walk in and my heart just skips a beat. I'm like, this is it. And, um, you know, Waldorf is aesthetically very pleasing to the eye. It's also just, you know, being in the field of like primary colors and busy walls and things like that. That is not the Waldorf method, and, you know, environment. And so my heart was just like, now I want to learn about this. What is it? Wow. So, right, because I think a lot of us say my parents did the best they could with what they were given. We are, you know, we hold parents with sort of grace and an understanding. This is tough. It's it's hard. So, so many of us promise ourselves <laughs> we'll do stuff really differently or some stuff really differently. And then and then it become it becomes tricky, right? We go back to what we know when we're tired, when we're this or that or the other or or we get a lot of feedback from the people that are in our circles about what we're doing. Did you get some pushback from folks around you when you were parenting differently? What was it like having your kids around your parents or your kids around your family when you were parenting them so differently than you had been parented? Yes. Yeah, so I want to say I come from a very traditional Hispanic family. <laughs> so this is also very different um, to be around um, the way that I was parenting culturally. 
Uh, my parents were super involved with my um, first son in the sense of I was still attending college. I was 20, 21. Uh, and, and so they were watching my, they were going to be watching my son um, twice a week um, while I was in school. And so I really held my philosophy really tight. <laughs> and I said, this is the way it's going to be. You know, this is how we're going to, you know, feed him. This is how we're going to talk to him. And they were really like, they wanted to be hands off. They're like, well, if that's the way you're going to do it, then maybe we shouldn't be involved. And they were really like, not, not open to it. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, um, I proceeded. I was like, this is, this is how I want my son to be raised. And so they got to see him move you know, freely on the ground, rolling around, uh, not sitting in the bouncy chair, which they really wanted to do. Um, and they got to see how much he understood, even though he wasn't verbal yet, he was, you know, communicating his needs. He was understanding what I was saying. Um, I'm going to leave the room now. You know, he would look as I left the room, I would come back and say, okay, I'm back now. He'd look at me again and then proceed to play. Um, and they started to see that and they were like, wow, this is different. And they started to participate mm -hmm. so much that, you know, they really use the philosophy. And so when we were at a larger family gathering, cousins, uncles, aunts, you know, my son is now uh, one year old. My dad comes over to my son and says, we're going to be leaving now. I'm going to go get your jacket and then it's going to be time to go. Um, and my cousins, my older cousins, you know, <laughs> laughing at their uncle who's talking to his grandson like if he understood you know um so my dad goes and he grabs the jacket and you know my son participates putting on the jacket and um and my older cousin is like Andrew I'm going to lift my hand up I'm going to wave to you now I'm saying goodbye and so was you know making a joke <laughs> and again you know I can be true to myself understand what I'm doing and be okay with everybody else not approving of me and just allowing myself that that grace of like not everybody's going to understand and that's totally okay and for me to go yeah I'm doing something different so I can be the weird one and I'd be okay with that but quite honestly I kind of built the weird one all along so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite shocking, but it's more comfortable in my skin of like, this is for my child. It doesn't have to make everybody happy. I think that's a big, you know, so much of what I do in my work is support parents whose kids are on different journeys than they are, right? Like than they were so, and that they have navigated in life. And that becomes such a big piece, whether it's parenting a kid who's had trauma that needs something different that you might get in the way you were raised otherwise, or racially, if you're raising a child who has different needs than, than you maybe did in your own identity, <clears throat> that this idea of being able to somehow stay the, stay the course, right. To, to have enough. What do, what do you think parents need I, to be able to stay the course? I heard you say, I've always been kind of that odd one. So there was a part of me that could claim that identity proudly and be like, yep, there she goes again, doing something out there sort of a thing. <laughs> but but if that's not necessarily your persona, what do what do parents need? Do they need education, support? Like what kinds of things do you think parents need to go back to as touchstones when they're getting feedback from people around them that 
something they're doing is is you know laughable or or harmful or or gonna cause you problems later kind of a thing like i heard that a ton yeah well, i was i was gonna say you must have heard these things yeah. it's so familiar it sounds so familiar and, you know, deeply, a lot of people say those things out of concern or heart, you know, they're coming from a good place. And so remembering that, you know, that, you know, um, for me, um, it allowed, I was allowed in that process to be comfortable in my own skin. But when I was it, so when I had doubts or wasn't sure, for me, it was like, okay, why am I doing this though? Hey, am I, am I doing this to make other people happy or am I doing this so that my son has a foundation of, of knowing who he is, you know, okay, I'm doing it for him. Okay. Then I can take the flack a little bit, you know, or I can yep. be uncertain because I know, you know, why I'm doing it. Um, but even then, so if I didn't have that, like that, if I had uncertainty with that as well, it would be, um, my, my friends who understand my path. You know, they may not agree with it, but okay, right. yeah, I can support you. Friends don't have to agree with you, but they yeah. can support you. Yeah. And so leaning in my friends and going, okay, this is this is where I'm at. Well, Erica, you've always done that. Or Erica, I see what happens with your son when you do that. So just a reflection of who you are yeah. as a reminder. Yeah, I think that's great. So, so stopping and asking or centering yourself so that you remember this is really, it's, it's the marathon, it's the scaffolding, it's building the skills for your child and the, the, you know, other people just may not have the exposure to what this is. They're only seeing a soundbite of it. So they don't understand that it's kind of a tapestry or it's woven together over time and, and sort of just recommitting, like, I know this is what will help my kid thrive and think and feel for themselves and 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 navigate well i talk to parents about we teach um we teach ourselves so if we're wavering in our values because we're in a different environment you know we're with family or we're out in the world or whatever then we're then teaching that to our children that you know you're you're uncertain we're wavering in, in in life in that way yeah how how do you say we talked a little bit about this right like and I know there's no one answer to this. There's a sweet spot I find in parenting between being really clear about your family values, being unwavering, and being being able to march on even when the crowds around you are parting and chuckling, right? Like, yes. But also then being being flexible, as you say, like holding a, holding a loose grip on. How do you? How do you, I mean, was it rigidity that powered you through? Were you like blinders on full steam ahead? Like, how do you, how, how do you think about whether or not this is a rigid commitment to these principles or not? How would you talk about that with parents? Yes, I would definitely say that I was, I was definitely rigid in the beginning with my first son. I felt um, there was so much judgment. I felt like it was just me. So I really needed to hold my boundaries. Um, did I let my parents be who they were with my son? Totally. You know, they were going to have their humor. They were going to have their relationships. Um, did I ask them to do certain stuff, you know, talk to him before you, you know, are going to pick him up, let him know, you know, yes. And so when, um, when I, I do want my parents, I want people to be authentic with my child and I want my values to be respected as well. 
um, I can do that. I can have conversations. I think in the beginning, I was just like, this is it. <laughs> this is what we're doing. You're on board or you're not. <laughs> and luckily they did. They, they softened. They, they did jump on board. But I think if I didn't allow them to be themselves, if I just held, you know, this is what was it, you know, um, too tight, I think that would have even harmed our relationship as well. Yeah. Yeah. There really is this thing about like, almost like having a, a vision that's clear for where you're going, but knowing that the road's going to be windy to get there and that they're, you know, so if grandma and grandpa do something that doesn't make sense to you, then, you know, the classic, the car ride home, there is a little bit of that, like choosing when to intervene with grandma and grandpa in person and, or then also saying on the car ride home, wowza, boy, grandma didn't read that. You know, grandma doesn't go to school with us, does she? Or grandma, what do you think Miss Smith would say to grandma if she had done that? And like, you know, we can love grandma and still recognize that grandma does stuff differently. So there, there's, it's like knowing what you want your kids to learn, but also recognizing you may not be able to control, you can't control the environment around them to deliver it all the time. And there's really powerful learning in that as well for us as parents. Really? We, we don't want our kids to be in a bubble. We do want them to have those real life experiences, especially when we're still present rather than, you know, they're at the mall or, you know, they're at school and you don't see them for six hours or so. Um, we do want them to have those experiences, and I call it like rubbing up against each other. You know, um, I remember my oldest, we had come home from grandpa's again. He was like five years old. And uh, he said, mom, I didn't like the way grandpa talked to me. You know, he might've like, was strict and firm or maybe even raised his voice. And I was like, oh, you know, okay, we can talk to grandpa about that. You know, so I'm here, I'm supportive and we can do this together. Um, yeah. uh, but for him to be able to reflect on that and, and go, okay, yeah, let's talk to grandpa about that. And what were your, how were the layers, how did you navigate the cultural pieces around that? Right? Like, I mean, I heard you say like, you're from a fairly traditional Hispanic family that that may not have had the you know the training formally in Waldorf and Rye and it may and some of those elements may have gone against what what was valued. How were there did that feel oh. unsettling? Yeah, so did that feel unsettling? All along the way. Oh. All along the way. And so in the beginning it was like the physical stuff of really letting them, you know, climb the tree if their body can climb the tree and, you know, oh no, watch it, you know, you should take him down and and I'm like, I, I, I've seen him. He climbs up this tree often. You might be uncomfortable. You might want to move away or you might not want to look, but he is very agile and he can do this. <laughs> um, so first it was like the physical aspect of it. And then it was, you know, they got to feel their emotions. So we could not feel our like emotions. If we were upset about something, you want me to give you something to cry about? You know, yeah. it was that kind of way. Uh, and it was like, so for them to like, be expressing themselves where they were either they're throwing a tantrum about something or, you know, mommy, I don't like that, you know, and things like that. And it's like, I hear you. I see you're really upset that I'm not offering you to go outside right now. And, you know, in front of grandma and grandpa, and they're like, what are you doing? How, why are you letting him talk to you like that? And I'm like, he's upset. He gets to be upset. You know, there was actually a time where um, my my son, I want to say he was like three years old and um, his dad was absent from his life. 
and he actually um, called my friends, um, mom and dad, for like a two week period, and um, and and my mom was like, "Oh my God, don't you feel horrible? Like, isn't that awful that he's calling, you know, your friends, mom and dad?" I said, "That's his process. Like, he's needing that, and I'm not going to correct him. Like, they're not your mom and dad, you know. I, I that's a process, and it was like two weeks." And then he returned back to mom. But it was, you know, that was his process. I'm going to support him. You know, he called me Erica, you know, for, you know, that period of time. But it was really, for me, it's honoring of them. Mm. And instead of making it right for me. Did, did were there comments about how that's not how it's done in your, because so many, my experiences, right, as a, as a white woman moving around in lots of circles with, with folks who are, parenting kids of color that there's this idea somehow that that's a worried a worried well kind of hippy dippy white people way like a, a luxurious you know because of privilege style of parenting and yeah. that and that there's a there's a privilege slash whiteness piece to thinking that's good for your kid were there like was that an undercurrent in what was happening were there were your parents rolling their eyes about this from you in terms of the cultural piece or was it more they were just worried that your kids were going to be out of control humans yeah <laughs> out of control humans never mind what ethnicity or racial background they have yeah definitely i i think it was like that oh you're educated and uppity kind of thing mm-hmm. which definitely relates over to the whiteness of the world mm-hmm. and and so that it was more of that kind of thing yeah. um and like i'm thinking i'm better than them of that sort and i was like these are my kids. I get to choose what I want to do with my kids. And, you know, you get to choose what you want to do with your kids. And I, you know, I don't have a, you know, a thing about that. Like, that's up to you. So when we would go over to cousin's house and they were all, you know, my cousins and I, we had children at the same time. And so my kids would go over and they didn't have a video game system. And they didn't have TV. So they were like, it, they were in it and loving it. And then we get in the car and like, ah, you know, we don't have a video game system and we don't get to see t- violent TV shows or movies <laughs> and things like that. And it was like, yes, that's, that's, I, I would say this, I'm your mom and this is my choice. And when you grow up, you'll get to make those choices for your children. And that's, you know, that's your cousin's mom. That's my cousin. And she gets to make her choice because those are her children. And I always kept it, pretty clean like that not like it was bad or good or yep. things like that yeah um these same kids you know my kids we would go over their their cousins are you know they're all teenagers now and um and again we jump in the car and they're like wow they never wanted to come out and play basketball like they didn't want to go throw the football around they just wanted to you know watch you know their video games and things like that and I was just like yeah, people make different choices and that's okay. That's okay. And it was like, thank you for letting us play. <laughs> yeah. How have you seen the <clears throat> the arc of this, right? Because I know why right, I'm in it. Many of us are in it with kids challenging based on what they're supposed to do. Developmentally, they're supposed to push back. They're supposed to find a space that is their own. They're supposed to question their, you know, all of this stuff. 
you have kids ranging in 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 ages. I imagine. Well, how would you say your parenting changed, if any, from your first to your current? Like, did did sounds like your values have stayed the same? Has the road gotten windier? Have they shifted? And like, tell me a little bit about the difference between parenting your eldest and your youngest, and what you noticed about that. Yes, definitely. Um, you know, media was so much easier back then than it is now. Um, and so that would, I want to say is the biggest difference, but I want to say it started even with my, um, second youngest who just turned 14, you know, he had brothers who were eight and 12 years older than him. And so as they became teenagers and they had, you know, media in the house, then it was like, Oh, well, you know, by, by default, the five-year-old is going to have some media. Is it, the teenage media? No. Is it something that's more appropriate? Yes. Um, but then of course you have the teenagers, but mom, yeah. I didn't get, you know, yes. that's not fair. I didn't have that. I was like, you have it. And so it's a different, you know, it's a different household now. And again, you know, with the two-year-old of like, you know, he was, he's wanting to use the phone because, you know, the teenager or his dad or mom are on the phone. And so it's like, no, you know, I'm not offering that. You can call, we can call, you know, daddy on the phone if you'd like to, but I'm not offering you to use my phone. Yeah. So just be, I think it's that process of teaching reasoning process of teaching kind of autonomy or agency, right? Yep. Other families get to decide. These are our, these are our values. Other families get to decide. You get to decide. There'll be days when this feels awesome. There'll be days when it doesn't feel good, but yeah, you're also entitled to have your feelings about how you don't like what our values are sometimes. Totally. And like how we talked about, you know, loosening the grip. So my older children, you know, they didn't have like a lot of sugar. I mean, we, you know, I cooked a lot at home and so I got to, you know, be part of that. And um, and so when they look at, you know, their youngest brother, who's two years old and they're like, mom, we did not have syrup on our pancakes or we didn't have cupcakes <laughs> at the birthday party or whatever. I'm like, yeah, I know. Sorry about that. <laughs> like, right. I mean, I think sometimes there does have to be a pendulum sway a little bit, right? It's like you have to stink loudly and hold yeah. on, but then recognizing over time, like. Yeah, if the vision is clear, if you understand what's what, if you're committed to raising kids who are safe, communicating, uh, you know, thoughtful humans, if that's yeah. what, you know, who love to learn, and, you know, then, then there'll be days that things line up really well with that and other days that there are stumbles along that, that um that path as well. And I think the flexibility to be able to recognize that, that sometimes these parenting techniques where we are letting our kids have feelings and giving them autonomy, like, like letting them have feelings toward us, letting them question and challenge us, um, can feel really lonely because again, we have to remember that person in the supermarket, the the grandma the you know the cousin they're they're getting a moment in time they're getting a literal snapshot of this tapestry right if you take a giant weaving and you zoom in on one thread you're gonna see 
not the whole picture. <laughs> so, <laughs> so reminding ourselves, like speaking to myself and ourselves as parents, like it, it, it really is about pausing, reminding yourself why you're committed to having a, you know, communicative feelings kid and, and just being able to exhale a little bit and, and, and trust that what in your parenting coaching, as we you think about winding down today, what are some of the things, like if you had takeaways for parents who were listening to this and who are curious about Waldorf and Rye or who are trying to parent differently than they were parented, what are some of the things that you find come up a lot in your coaching that we haven't talked about? I think that when they are striving for this, sometimes the pendulum swings completely the other way. So where, you know, I had definitely authoritarian parents and this is the way it's going to be. You don't want the consequences to happen. So you just do what you're told Um, to allowing them feelings to the point where it's being harmful or disrespectful to the environment, to yourself, to, you know, each other, you know, to themselves even. And so I think it's really about coming back from that. And, and again, we teach ourselves. And so we have to be modeling what is respectful to us. Yes, they can be upset about losing their video games or, you know, not being able to go see a friend and things like that, but it shouldn't be in your face. That's not respectful that's not tolerant and we're modeling that respect so we want to have that it may not always look like that (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and we can say this is what I'm okay with you can be upset but I'm not going to have you in my face yeah you can be you can complain right here or we can get in the car and get over to your friends you can complain about how long you're going to be instead of two hours, you're only getting an hour there. You can complain all you want, but that's part of your hour at this point. Yeah. No, I think that's, I actually really thank you, Erica, because I think parents and people in general struggle with this idea that, that you can't be in charge. Right. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Kids absolutely need to know that a grown up isn't it's scary if you don't know what the grown-up's gonna do or if you're not sure who's running things like there there definitely still have to be some boundaries around that so absolutely like not not moving away from this idea that that um you can exert (laughs) leadership over your kids but the idea is that they're they're honored while you're doing that they're allowed to ask questions yeah, you can have that feeling and, you know, the way you're expressing it is a problem. So how, how else can you, where can you go if you need to yell and scream? What are the things you can do around that? And, and, and I think that's also important because I've, I think fundamentally being able to work with parents to understand that if kids, they need agency, but if they actually think they're running things, it is unsettling for them, even though they'll tell you, and show you, you think that's what they want. It it actually causes a lot more anxiety in the family system, and you're going to get worse behavior because your kids aren't sure where the boundaries are. Does that resonate with you? Is that one of one hundred one hundred percent? And what I'm finding in my work is that they've given that agency to two, three, four year olds, and it is not a pretty picture at five. <laughs> and and they might be expecting another child, and yeah. so it's like, but. Let's 
bring it all. We're the facilitators. We're facilitating that freedom and that sense of, you know, what is okay and what's not okay. If you've worked with me at all, you'll hear me at least say, is this going to be cute in five years? You know, <laughs> <laughs> is this going to be cute in five years? I like that. That's us. Yeah. Right? Stop and ask. Exactly. Yeah. No. And then, so I always say, and so much of this is the sweet spot, right? Because it's, it's the container where the facilitators, we, we sort of set the boundaries and then let the play vary a little bit within those boundaries that it is, yeah, too much control for kids is is scary. And scared behavior okay. looks like tantrums, rigidity, yelling, hitting, refusal, like that. That's unsettled. That's dysregulated, right? Scared yeah, behavior it's totally is dysregulated. And it's power-hungry kids, you know, because they've had a little taste because you've given them so much, and now they're just grasping yeah. for as much as they can. Yeah, well, I could, as I, as expected, I could sit and chat forever and ever and ever. Um, but I really appreciate this. I think um, we'll we'll link in the episode how folks can find you if they're interested in in connecting around how to keep finding this this sweet spot and working within those methods. And um, I'm really grateful for your time today. I think the more we can provide parents with it right like concrete stop and remind yourself what's your vision where do you where are you headed with this um being mindful of the pendulum swings finding your support whatever that looks like with when you're because you will be you will be if you're parenting different ways than you were parented um and if you're not parenting in an authoritarian you know authoritarian snap to it way You'll get feedback in public. You'll get feedback from family. So like how to find your supports around that and learn enough about what you're doing and why you're doing it so that you can hang on without gripping so tightly it it hurts. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So thank you, Erica, for coming. We'll link all your contact information so that folks can find you for a further conversation. And I really appreciate your uh, time and energy today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. Just a quick note here at the end to say I am so glad you joined and I hope you are too. And if you'd like to connect with me more, come take a look at my website, www.drlauraanderson.com. There you can join my newsletter, keep in touch and find out what is in the works. You can also join me for coffee and conversation uh, and Facebook at Common Cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today. Thank you.